Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, the crown of thorns. It takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden because prior to the sin of Adam and Eve, well, there were no thorns. That's a part of the curse. And it's worth noting, Jesus is wearing a sign of the curse upon his head as they twist that crown of thorns. Happy Friday. In today's broadcast, we have a one-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Jesus Condemned and Crucified. We're going to look at John chapter 19 in its entirety. In this chapter, we're going to consider Jesus' beating at the hands of the Roman soldiers, Pilate's decision, Jesus on the cross, and his death and burial. So, let's get started. John 19 begins with Pilate having Jesus scourged. It's a horrific punishment that was often used to bring, well, condemned criminals to, to confess various crimes or, in our case, sins that they would have committed. And it was very effective because as the scourge came down, ripping the, the body open, the, the pain in excruciating, well, people would cry out and confess. The problem in Jesus' case is he had no crimes to confess to, no sin to confess to, so every stripe would have been harder and harder and harder. Many men died from scourging. And when Pilate will later say of Jesus, behold the man, he's not being sarcastic. He is radically blown away at the power of Jesus and what he was able to endure. And then he could stand before him after all those things. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe, the crown of thorns. It takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden because prior to the sin of Adam and Eve, well, there were no thorns. That's a part of the curse. And it's worth noting, Jesus is wearing a sign of the curse upon his head as they twist that crown of thorns and put on him a purple robe. Then they began to say mockingly, Hail, King of the Jews. They struck him with their hands. One of the gospel writers tells us they blindfolded him and then blindsided him, saying, Hey, you're a prophet. Tell us who's hitting you. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no fault in him. We mentioned it at the end of our last study. Again and again and again, Pilate will confess that Jesus is innocent. Pilate is actually rendering a legal judgment. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Justice demands that Jesus be set free. But that's not going to happen because, well, your sin and mine demanded that someone pay and Jesus chose to pay. He says, no one takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and power to take it up again. And he died for your sin and for my sin was buried and rose again the third day. He says, I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. The injustice of this situation is only exceeded by the inhumanity and brutality that accompanied it. Therefore, verse six, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, 
crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. At one point, Pilate will wash his hands and say, I'm guilty of the blood of this innocent man. How can you be not guilty when you're condemning an innocent man to a horrific, painful, shameful death on the cross? Well, in any case, the Jews answered, we have a law and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. He didn't make himself the son of God. He was with the father and one with the father. John once said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. He didn't make himself out to be, well, the son of God. He simply revealed himself as the son of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Therefore, verse eight, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. Note, Jesus is fearless. He marches into Jerusalem knowing what would happen to him. He approaches those and, who were arresting him in the garden, advancing toward them, not running from them, not hiding from them. Jesus confronted them, said, I am, and they fell back. And now as Pilate is, is afraid, we're reminded Jesus was fearless. Well, there's more. He went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said, are you not speaking to me? Still no answer. Do you not know I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all unless it were given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation day of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. He already said, behold the man. He already declared him not innocent. Now, I mean, not guilty. Now he says, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. What tragic words from the, the mouth of one who was representing the king of kings and lord of lords or was meant to. Jesus stands before them and they're yelling, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Listen, then he delivered him to be crucified and they took Jesus and led him away. So important to process this. They condemned an innocent man, but he doesn't condemn them. Why? He didn't come to condemn but that we might be saved through him. He knew men were already condemned because the wages of sin is death. The law condemns every man because no one but Jesus ever kept it. And those without the law are condemned by their own conscience. And God's given every man and every woman and every boy and every girl a conscience. So when we sin, even if we've never heard the word or been told that's wrong, we know internally that what we're doing is an offense. What we're doing is wrong. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to save because we were all already condemned and in need of a savior. 
Well, again, last time Jesus advanced toward the enemy, and I'm reminded that during this worldwide crisis, first responders, those in the medical field, the doctors, the nurses, the paramedics, our firemen and, and our army and, and, and Navy and, and Air Force, the military around the world, all of these advanced into the danger. Just last year, we saw all of paradise, our sister city up the hill burn. And as people were running away and doing all they could to escape, firemen were moving into the fire. And I want to say that, that Jesus had that kind of passion and we should be thanking God for every one of those first responders, for every paramedic, every nurse, every doctor today who are putting themselves in harm's way on behalf of people they don't even know. They're risking their lives to save people's lives they don't even know. And listen, pray for them, just that God will bless them and reveal himself to them because all the good they're doing, and it's a great good, won't ever make up for the sin they've committed and Jesus said, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sin. No one will be into heaven because, because well, they did good or tried hard or, or kept the law or, or ministered in times of crisis. We come through Jesus or we don't come at all. So pray that God will protect and preserve them and more that he'll reach them and that they'll come to know him and his forgiveness in his son, Jesus Christ. Well, he, Jesus, verse 17, bearing his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull. In Hebrew, it's Golgotha. In, in, in um, Greek, uh, it, it's, it's Calvary. And so place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary. It's important to us. It's where they crucified him and two others with him, we read. One on either side, Jesus in the center. You need to know that earlier, James and John had sought positions in the kingdom to come. They'd even got their mom to come and ask Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can my boy sit at your right hand and your left hand? Jesus said, that position is not for me to give. But, but note this, Jesus comes into the kingdom through the cross. He establishes the, the sacrifice that will give us freedom from sin and, and cleansing from sin and life forever in him. And because of that, these two on either side of him, well, they're alongside of the one who is laying down his life for all of us. One of those two will come to his senses. The other will die in his sin. And I pray that we could find ourselves in that picture, realize that he was on that cross for your sin and mine. And one of them will ask for forgiveness and find it. The other will die in his sin. And we have to make the same decision. And with the same outcome. Well, in any case, Pilate wrote verse 19, a title and put it on the cross. The writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate for once stands up and says, what I've written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they therefore said among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers 
did these things. Listen, these soldiers were absolutely unaware of prophecy. They weren't trying to fulfill prophecy. They were just doing what they always did, what come natural to them. But get this, God didn't have to force their hand. No, he foretold what would happen because he foresaw it. He knew that they'd gamble for the clothing. And in Psalm 22, you'll find these things written in graphic detail. So many prophecies fulfilled as Jesus was heading to the cross and, and crucified on the cross and buried after and then risen again the third day. Well, that reminds me to remind you there are four Gospels, and it's important because none of the Gospel writers give us all the things that Jesus would say from the cross. There are seven in all. Luke was first, and I'm going to walk you through these seven. They will be the heart of our passage and our study today, so pay close attention. In Luke 23, 34, for you note jotters, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's so powerful because the very first utterance is to the Father on behalf of those sinners, not just the two on each side, but those who handed him over, those who crucified him. He prays for their forgiveness, and in doing so, he prays for our forgiveness. But he's not just hoping the Father will forgive. It's not the Father's will any perish, but all come to repentance. So Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them, and he's making that forgiveness possible by paying the penalty for your sin and mine for their sin and ours. Luke 23, 39, a little later in that same chapter, one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save us and yourself. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, do, not, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Listen to what's taking place. The other gospels make it clear, both of them had blasphemed him, but one comes to his senses, one repents of that sin, and he confesses his guilt, Jesus' innocence, and then he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, remember me, acknowledging him as Lord, asking him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Listen, it's so important because he has had a change of heart and a change of mind and he's on a cross paying for, well, a crime he deserved to die for. He confesses that. He confesses Jesus didn't belong on a cross, but he believes that Jesus can save him from his sin. And Jesus says to him and would be saying to you if you come to your senses and you confess you're guilty and he's holy and you ask for him to remember you and forgive you. Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. John 19, 25, we find the third. There stood by the cross, Jesus, the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own house. He entrusts his mother into John's care and John into his mother's care, knowing they will need each other. Times of grief, times of suffering, times of sorrow, we need each other. Well, John 19, 28 brings us to the fourth. After this, Jesus, knowing all things, 
were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And a vessel of sour wine was sitting there. They filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it in his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. The words literally mean paid in full. What he came to accomplish couldn't be accomplished simply by being born into this world as one of us or living sinlessly in it. He had to die for our sin. So he was born miraculously. He lived sinlessly. He died vicariously and he rose again victoriously. Father, he'll say, into your hands I commit my spirit. But first, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit, we read. Luke adds this, and he gives us the seventh. I'm thinking these two follow in quick succession. I thirst, it is finished. And the sun was darkened, the veil of the temple torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Listen, it is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He began petitioning the Father. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he concludes saying, Father, I'm putting myself in your hands. And he breathed his last. Yet another reminder. They didn't take his life from him. He had power to lay it down and power to take it up again. We see it again in here, here in verse 31 as we continue. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. This would speed their death because they'd no longer be able to push themselves up to get a breath. And, and so they come to Jesus. They saw that he was already dead. Why? He said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He breathed his last. No one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly. So they came to Jesus and, and they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. Important. One of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear. Immediately blood and water came out and he was seen and testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. He said the very same thing right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, that you may believe. And here he's saying it before, well, before, well, breathing his very last. John is testifying to the things that Jesus just did and just said. And in fact, he's going through his whole gospel. And we'll see it when we get into the next chapter. These things, by the way, verse 36, were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones should be broken. And another scripture, they'll look on him whom they've pierced. So every one of these things foreseen and foretold by the Lord. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, who first came at night to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb 
in which no one had ever been laid. Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, sat on the council that condemned Jesus to death. No doubt voting no, or at least refusing to vote. But now they're not worried about people realizing they're followers of Jesus. They will live the rest of their lives in the light, making sure people know. So they fearlessly come. They ask for the body. They tend to it. And by the way, from this point on, until we see Jesus resurrected, they never say just Jesus. They say the body of Jesus. Why? They weren't burying Jesus. He was already in, in spirit and beyond all of this. As the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without works is dead, James will tell us. But note that first part, it's true. When the body and the spirit are separated, man is dead. And Jesus died for our sins. And he'd already said, today you'll be with me in paradise. To one of those who found a way to, to believe that, that he too could be forgiven. And I pray today you also will find a way. Listen, we'll see this next time in John 20, but I want to read it to you. John 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John will tell us in 1 John 5, 11, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and that life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. So I have a couple questions for you and then I'm gonna pray for every believer here that every believer would be strengthened in, well, your faith. That, that you'd be encouraged that, that God, as Pastor Jacob shared, he's still on the throne. He's not finished with us and nothing can happen to us that doesn't go through the lens of his love and mercy for us. All things working together for good. And if you're like, well, how could such a horrific time in history, the whole planet infected, with this deadly virus. How can any good come from that? Hey, people are coming to Christ and believers are beginning to live for Christ who've been backslidden or, or, or just asleep in the light. God is at work in you if you know him and he wants to work through you. He wants you to encourage those who don't know him and he wants us to encourage one another, those of us who do. So the question is, do you have Jesus? And does he have you? If you're his, serve him, represent him, share him, love people on his behalf and boldly, lovingly proclaim the good news that he died for our sins, was buried and rose again, that there's forgiveness and life eternal in our Lord and Savior, Jesus. If you've never given your life to him, can I ask you today to consider your mortality? You may live another 20, 30, 40 years, you may die tomorrow. We have no way to know what will happen tomorrow, but we can know where we will be when it happens. If you give your life to the Lord, again, you will stand before the Father, accepted by Him, acceptable to Him in His Son, Christ Jesus. And if you die without Jesus, you will die in your sin and forever be separated from Him. In today's message, Pastor Sam pointed us to Psalm 22. 
As a recap, I want to simply read you this prophecy as it was recorded more than 500 years before the events that we considered today. Starting in Psalm 22, verse 12, it says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.